Dear Lord, we thank You so much for the grace that has been poured upon each of us. God, because of Your mercies and kindness, we can come before Your throne. And Lord, we can know You and worship You. I pray this morning that there's one that does not know You, that You would speak to them this day. There's one here today who is struggling and needing to experience the grace of God. I pray that You would draw them. Lord, open up the eyes of our hearts this morning that we might receive from You. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Uh, I was reading in the newspaper uh, this week, and uh, of course, there are several articles in there that kind of deal with the issue of pain and suffering. Uh, One of the individuals, uh, Misery Becomes Ministry, in the metro section, Jennifer Cox, uh, who's an assistant over at Oak Cliff Bible, uh, she shows a picture of her daughter here. Her daughter just died this past week. Uh, Jennifer has uh, she has a kidney problem. As a matter of fact, has already had a kidney transplant. Her husband has cancer, and her daughter had lupus. And uh, so she's been through the ringer, and she's uh, written a book and has a ministry to those who's, who have dying children. And uh, she just talks about how She's enabling, or God is allowing her to, to use this experience to, to minister to others. Uh, many of us, when we look at the topic of, sub, of suffering, or we think about pain and evil, or even good and evil for that matter, we have ways that we try to understand it, that we try to uh, categorize the purpose of pain and suffering. And in theological terms, it's called theodicy. But for us today, it's how do we deal with it? And when we read articles like that, or I read another article about how this woman here has starved her children and how they're being taken away from her, and she's been sentenced to life in prison, her and her boyfriend, and many of you have heard that story in the news. And then I noticed right next to it, it talked about the Alamo, the Alamo uh, Dome's roof and how they're concerned about that. And, you know, a year ago there was a roof problem with the Cowboys, and the roof fell, and... A couple people were seriously injured. One of them is still permanently paralyzed today. And when we see those things occur, how do we deal with that? What is our response to it? And, and mankind has always tried to deal with these. And, you know, there are several theological responses, different answers. As a matter of fact, I listed them in your bulletin. But can I tell you this? At the end of the day, when your child dies, they don't really make you feel better. Okay? They don't, oh, now I know the answer. I'll be okay now. That doesn't really change things for you when when you lose your marriage or you lose a child or something devastating happens in your life. But but let me give these to you. And, of course, these are man's attempt at understanding the Scriptures and understanding God and what He teaches. And I, I think they all have merit. Now, some would thoroughly disagree with this first one and others would disagree with some of the latter. But let me share them with them. The first one is the free will model, that God wanted us to freely love them, which meant the, for, uh, He meant to give us the ability to choose between right and wrong, whether to reject Him or to accept Him. And uh, we know that since Adam and Eve, we've been dealing with the results of our choices. If we have the freedom to choose between good and bad, that often people will choose bad. Sometimes people will just choose evil. That's the free will model. Uh, the second model is that of the great design argument, and it's simply this, that God designed a world in such a way that included the possibility 
of evil. And um, if we uh, rightly perceive it correctly, uh, we will understand that uh, things work together for the good, greater good. In other words, yes, there are things that will happen that are bad, things that are wrong, but they can all ultimately be meshed together for the greater good. Then there's the suffering of God response, which basically is this, that uh, God hurts with us when we have pains and sufferings that come into our lives. And He doesn't necessarily like it any more than we do, but He suffers and hurts with us. Uh, two other models that we can see are, uh, are that of the eschatological hope. That's a big word for the coming of Christ. That one day Jesus is coming, every tear is going to be wiped away, and all of this is going to end, and that in the end we will somehow be compensated for for the pain and the suffering that we endure here on earth. Uh, then two, the two last ones are uh, the theology of the cross, that through the cross victory has been gleaned and been given to each of us who call upon the name of the Lord. And through that sacrificial atonement, uh, the judgment upon evil has been pronounced and uh, the suffering that we experience, Christ transcends that suffering through the power of the cross. And then the last one, the uh, simple... Fideism uh, is this, is that we are to have faith and trust in God and that God is ultimately in control and that He is good and He can be trusted despite the trials and difficulties. We're not going to understand what's going on. Let's just trust God, basically. Okay? So with that understanding, uh, you can reflect back on those later. And again, there's a lot of debate over those things. We see that we're still trying to understand pain and suffering. We're still trying to understand good and evil and how it comes about. And it's no different than in Jesus' day. Matter of fact, let's read our text here in Luke chapter 13. Uh, matter of fact, as you look at this text, the principal message here is actually one of repentance. The first two will be lifetime stories or real life stories. If you had picked up a newspaper in that day, if they had had one, maybe it would have been a clay tablet, you could have read about these instances here that are given. And then a third one uh, is a parable given about the nation itself. In chapter 13, verse 1 in the Gospel of Luke, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or the eighteen who died under the tower of Siloam, when it fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told this parable. I, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For year, three years now I've been coming here looking for fruit on the fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone in one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, let's take this apart. Like, like I said, the... The last part, the fig tree illustration, is talking about national repentance. And that's not really where we're going to dwell today. We're going to talk about individual for just a moment. And let's look at this text for just a moment. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. What's occurring here? First of all, let's remember the Galileans uh, were a sect of, of the Jews, of Judaism, who were highly regarded 
as uh, adversarial to the Roman government. Matter of fact, it's probably where Judas the Zealot came from. And many of the Zealot, the Zealot movement, those who uh, nationally felt like that they ought to take up physical swords to fight the Roman Empire, those were typically, uh, or many of them were Galileans. So much so that that term almost became synonymous with Zealots, the term Galilean. Now, Pilate, if you remember, Pilate was the guy who pronounced the sentence upon Jesus. A lot of times we like to look at him and think, oh, Pilate, he really struggled with that decision. But history bears out that Pilate was actually a pretty ruthless leader. And we see right here an instance of that. What evidently has occurred is some of these Galileans, Pilate has probably caught wind that they're maybe seeking a revolt or they've done something that's aggravated the Roman Empire. And what he decides to do, he knows that they will probably be coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Well, actually, the, the sacrificial system there at Passover, it was the one time that a layman could offer a sacrifice uh, there at Passover upon the altar. And so they probably waited, knowing that these Galileans would sure soon appear. And when they got there, in the process of offering the sacrifice... Uh, Pilate sent some of his soldiers and they murdered these Galileans right there in the temple, right there as they were offering their sacrifice. And apparently some of the blood got mingled, which would have been uh, probably the highest blasphemy for a Jew. When I say blasphemy, I'm talking about an irreverent act uh, of a holy place or a holy position or a holy, uh, holy act of worship. And so Pilate murders them and their blood becomes mingled in the sacrifices. And so this just further infuriates the Jews. And probably the individual asking this, we're not sure why, but it's possible that he's wanting to know, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, what are you going to do about things like that? This is the kind of stuff we're having to put up with. Jesus, what is your response to Pilate murdering these guys while they're trying to offer their sacrifices? What's the deal here? And Jesus says this to them. Very interesting response. Jesus says this, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans before them? You think that the reason they suffered is because they were bad? You think it's because of their sin that they were killed there while they offered their sacrifices? Is that what you think is occurring? Hey, and, and that's kind of where we are today, isn't it? I mean, people still try to define it this way. Either you did something bad... Or God's out to get you. I mean, that's kind of the mentality. So they're asking, hey, is that the deal? And we already know from the reading earlier that Tommy did for us in the Gospel of John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, when they came to Jesus and they said, hey, this man is blind here and he, he suffered, he struggled this since he, was, since he was born. Was this his sin? Or was this the sin of his parents or his grandparents? And Jesus said, no, it's neither. You see, the common thought in that day and age, and, and really it's fairly common amongst people today, to be honest with you, was this. If you suffered or if you died in, in an unnatural way, that was divine judgment upon you. That was God's judgment upon you. So that was certainly true in the book of Job. It's still true during this time and even today. A number of people still feel that way. But how does Jesus respond to that? He says... Do you think that they were worse than all the other Galileans when they suffered like this, when they were killed? And what does Jesus say? I tell you, no. 
No. They didn't get killed and they didn't die because they were worse than all the other Galileans. And it would be kind of an interesting statement if he had just said that. But what's, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't leave it there. What does he say? No. But unless you likewise repent, you will perish. No, I tell you, that's not it. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus, what are you talking about? What is he communicating here? No. Good. But unless you repent, you too will perish. You know, I was feeling pretty good when you first gave the answer, but now this other part, this doesn't make me feel good at all. Jesus is, if you'll allow me to use this term, he's spiritualizing this message. He's saying, you know what? You're all sinners. You're all in need of grace and forgiveness. All of you are sinners. And if you don't repent, if you don't recognize who the Savior is, if you don't receive the grace of God, you too will perish. Then another popular event or another local media story, so to speak, Jesus talks about it here. Are those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Apparently, there was a tower that was built there over Siloam, which was the main water system. And the tower fell. We don't know if it was because of the wind, if there was a small earthquake. We're not sure what caused the tower to fall. But apparently when it fell, 18 people died. And Jesus is saying, okay, let's talk about another situation. You talk about an, what we call moral evil, the human moral evil response. That would be obviously what Pilate had done. But now here's a natural disaster or a natural evil event, so to speak. And the tower's fallen on these people. Do you think they were the most 18 wicked people in all of Jerusalem that day? Do you think it's because of their sin that the tower fell down on them? What does Jesus say? I tell you, no. It wasn't God making that tower fall on them because they were bad. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Wow. That's kind of a hard word there, isn't it? Yes, there's pain and suffering. Yes, tragic things happen. And it's awful. But let me tell you, if you don't repent, you will perish. You will suffer a worse consequence for eternity. So here's the deal. We're all sinners. We all need to receive the grace and the forgiveness of God. Quit worrying about who's the most spiritual and who has the most sin. You're all on an equal playing ground. You all are struggling with your sin nature. Do you understand that? Now, let's break this down just a little further. Now, a couple of things for us to understand. First of all, there is what we call... Uh, human or moral evil. Uh, Pilate is a, is a picture of that. His murder of these Galileans is a picture of that. And we could think of our own modern illustrations. You know, the most, uh, the most popular would be that of Hitler or Mussolini. Uh, I read in the paper earlier about the woman who starves her children. Okay, those are examples of where a human agent is responsible for the evil. Okay? Uh, I personally don't believe that God is instructing them to do that and making them do that, uh, but through the influences of sin and evil, they are 
committing these acts of atrocity. Okay, and we would all agree those things happen. All right, so there's there's one category. Now there there's the other category, the Siloam, the Tower of Siloam, where a natural disaster kind of occurs. We can look at different disasters that have occurred, whether it was Katrina or Rita. In Haiti, there was the earthquake. In, in Chile, there was the earthquake. And, um, and a lot of times people will go, yeah. And you even heard people say this, and I'm not going to quote any names, but can I just say that I disagree? You know, that's God's judgment. There's God's judgment on those people down there in southwest Texas, southeast Texas, and Louisiana. Terrible place, I tell you. God's just trying to wipe them out. What about all the Christians? What about all the, the people who were good? What about all the churches were down there? Just wipe them out. God really is that sorry, that's just part of it. You're all bad and you're all getting punished. We need to be careful about making statements like that. And when people start saying that, you ought to put your fingers in here and go, nah, 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 nah. I mean I mean literally it drives me crazy when I hear people say that. Why? Because Jesus just said no. Now let me say this. The Bible tells us in Galatians 6 that we will reap what we sow, and sometimes we make decisions that have negative consequences. I'm not suggesting for a moment that sometimes we don't do things that have natural consequences. But we are not God and cannot make the determination that when an earthquake hits or when a uh, storm comes, that that's God punishing certain people. What Jesus is saying, then we all ought to get punished. The earthquake ought to hit every one of us, and then we can go, that's fair, okay? Or the, the hurricane ought to wipe all of our towns out, all right? So I, I know there are certain ministers that make those statements. I'm sorry, it just drives me nuts when they say, I want to say, what do you do with this passage of Scripture right here? And I don't see the word prophet on you, by the way. Well, some of them take it. That's a whole other story. Let's, let's move on. So... We, we have to deal with that, don't we? There's those two categories. There's either the natural evil or there's the moral evil, so to speak. All right? So that brings us to the two primary approaches that people take. Both of them are flawed. Both of them, I think, are incorrect. The first approach would be what I'd call the religious approach. All right? I'm going to pray. I'm going to say my prayers. I'm going to give. I'm going to do what I should. I'm going to be a good person. And because I'm that, God will protect me and He owes me a good life. I've earned the right to be blessed, happy, and saved, or whatever else I think I've deserved by checking the boxes and being a good person. So if I'm good, God's good. If I'm bad, God's bad to me. Okay? The whole karma. Good karma, you get good things. Bad karma, you get bad things. Okay? And that's the kind of the religious approach. It's the way most religions handle it. It's the way they were handling it that day. It's what they did in the day of Job. It's what many were doing in the day of New Testament. And still today, we still think that's the way it worked. I do good things, God gives me good things. If I'm not so good, then I get cursed and maybe I get wiped out in a storm. Okay? So that's kind of the religious approach. All right? Or the moralistic, the self-righteous approach. Because we think somehow we can earn it and fiend those things off by doing certain things. Second approach would be the irreligious. How can you believe in a God like that? A God that lets pain and suffering and evil occur like that. God must not be in control or He doesn't care or He's not loving or He doesn't exist. Those are basically the two approaches people use today. That's what the majority, I would say, of the world does. They either believe in the old karma or religion mentality or they believe that God just can't do anything or He really doesn't care or He's not that good of a God after all. Okay, or he doesn't exist. So those are the two uh, primary responses most people have. And they're trying to put, get Jesus to, to say, which one is it? 
Which one is it? And Jesus says, no, you've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. And unless you all repent, you all likewise will receive the same faith. Jesus uses it as a teaching moment here to teach about what true repentance really is. What repentance is, that's exactly what he's doing. He's proclaiming, in my opinion, the gospel here. The gospel. No, but unless you repent. The problem is, is we don't really understand that word repentance very well today. You know, Martin Luther, and as a matter of fact, I listed the first two. In his 95 theses, his first three theses were about repentance and the misunderstanding of what repentance was in his day when he sought reformation, so to speak. And we still deal with it today, don't we? We still think repentance is, I did something bad, so I better say I'm sorry. That's what we think repentance is. But when you begin to really understand biblical repentance, and particularly repentance in the gospel itself, you begin to see something very different. It's the recognition that we're all sinners and that nothing that we do really has any great merit to it. And that we're all completely dependent upon the grace of God. And so, as Jesus is speaking this message, it's interesting. He's not speaking to those who just suffered. He's not talking to the families here. He's actually talking to people who are probably like a lot of you today. You know, things are okay today. They may not be great, but I'm not having a tremendous struggle or a tremendous time of suffering. I haven't just lost the closest person in my life to me. That that hasn't happened to me today. Jesus is addressing them. And he's saying, you know what? It's time for repentance. Well, I haven't done anything. Exactly. You ought to be repenting. Uh, Well, you know, things are actually really, really good right now. It's a great time to repent. What do you mean by repent? I mean, what am I having to be sorry for? Well, maybe it's not so much about being sorry as recognizing that, you know what? I am a sinner and there's nothing I have to offer you, God. And also recognize that everything I have, my job, any finances that I have, my family, anything that I've been blessed with is a gift of grace. I've not earned or deserved any of it. Yes, I've worked, but you've given me the opportunity. You've given me the place. You've put me in that position. Everything I have is a gift of grace from God Almighty. That's the spirit of repentance. That's what true repentance is. When I recognize who God is and who I am. And I'm in a constant state of thanksgiving and recognition that there's nothing of my own merit. I have no reason to have pride in myself and what I've accomplished for it has been a gift of God. That's the spirit of true repentance. That's what Martin Luther was trying to teach. That's what Jesus is trying to teach to us today. There's repentance, repentance. And that's what we always get stuck. You know what? I'll do this and I'll make up and I'll atone and, and I'll beat myself up and I'll feel really badly that I acted that way. No. And somehow that'll make me closer to God. No. Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not that you're, it's not that you think you're so bad. Here's the real truth of it is, you're all worse than you ever thought you were. You don't, if you got what you deserved, you wouldn't want it. There's not any of us in this room that have ever received even 5% of what we deserve. 5% of the retribution for the lies we've told, for the thoughts we've had, for how we've under, undercut people, for the way we've treated people, for the thoughts that we think, for the way that we've acted, for some of the things that we've done. If we got retribution for all those, 
we would just be in penance all the time. That's the truth. So we haven't been given what we deserve. We've been given grace. And God wants us to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I know I don't deserve everything I have, but I just say thank you and I worship you. That's the life of repentance that he's talking about right here. So let me help you understand a little better. In this community, I think uh, most people have had children or at least been one at some time in your life. So I think we all qualify, but particularly those of you who have teenagers or adult children, tell me if this isn't true. Isn't it the easiest thing in the world to think, you know, how your children doing has everything to do with how you're doing and how you value yourself as a, a believer before God and how well you've done in life. And if your children have struggled, if your adult children are struggling now, if your teenagers are struggling, if you've got a teenager and you're thinking, I don't, I don't think they like me, and what's worse is I'm not sure I like them. You know what I mean? And, and you're in that place, and heck, they could be in middle school for that matter, and you're, you're having these feelings, you're dealing with this, and they're making bad decisions, and you've tried to do it right, you've tried to raise them, you've prayed for them, you've tried to teach them values, and... And you, and you should, and I think that makes a, an incredible difference when we do things correctly. But sometimes we can do all those things and our children just make rotten decisions. And they're knuckleheads. And you can just think, God, what did I do? What did I do? God, I'm, I just can't believe it. I, where did I go wrong? What did I do? And, and God's saying, no, you're missing it. On the other hand, you can be full of pride. <laughs> My kids are doing pretty good. Matter of fact, they're, they're going to be making more money than me one day, and they're doing well. They go to church, and things are going well. I've done a good job. They ought to ask me to teach that parenting class, you know. <laughs> you need to repent. I mean, more than anybody, you need to repent. Because you don't recognize that it's the grace of God that has been poured out upon you. And it's not of your merit and your goodness, but the grace of God. And the, the truth of it is, I, I was a youth pastor for 11 years. And I saw it time and time again. I mean, I actually lived with families. People who were great parents and they were really trying and their parents and their kids were going, what's going on with my kids? And other parents that weren't nearly as good, quite frankly, and their kids turned out pretty good. Does that right there not show you the grace of God that we ought to repent when our children are doing well and say, thank you, God. I love you, Lord. I know this is in spite of me. And when they're doing bad, that I don't take the full responsibility. God, this is all my fault. I don't want to lose her. I shouldn't go to church. I don't, I, just, I don't know, God. What's wrong with me? We don't really get to take the full responsibility either place. Okay? And I'm saying this. I, I, I don't feel like I have to tell you, you know, the importance of raising our children in the faith. Okay? I'm going to assume that for now. But recognize that it's all an act of grace. Let me conclude in this way so... Maybe this will help you understand a little bit better when it comes to salvation. You know, I, you've always heard this picture of the train and all these songs about the train going to heaven. I drive me nuts, too. I, I don't get those. Those are bad images. But anyway, you know, they use them, and so let's just go with it for a minute, okay? And it's like the picture is here. You know, I got my ticket. Remember Ronnie Millsap? I like Ronnie. He said, Jesus is your ticket to heaven. So I got my ticket here. You're, you're, you're like major over 40 if you know that song, but nevertheless. Um, I got my ticket here, and when God comes on the train, He's going to look, and everybody's got a ticket, you get to stay. If you're on this train without a ticket, off! No ticket! You don't have a ticket, get out of here! And then somehow these tickets are tickets that we earned. 
We went to church. We earned our ticket. We paid for this ticket. Here's my ticket. I get to go to heaven. That's like the religious approach. Okay, that's like the wrong picture right there. That's the wrong view. That's the, I'm good. God gives me the blessings. God saves me. I'm bad, too bad. Here's the real picture. There's a train. As much as I hate that analogy, there's a train. But the folks that are trying to get on this train don't have any money. They're penniless. They're poor. And they can't afford to get on there. But they've heard that there's a conductor who is a conductor of grace and mercy who will allow people to come if, if you'll simply introduce yourself to Him and, and, and just say, ask for mercy and ask for grace that He will allow you to ride. And So you go and there are some saying, well, I brought my money. I, I brought my ticket. I got, I got some my stuff here. I'm going to pay. And others are going, well, I don't really have anything. I'm completely dependent upon the grace and the mercy of the conductor. And so you all get on the train, and when the conductor comes around to your seat, you go, I, I, I don't deserve to be here. I, I can't afford this, but I'm asking for your mercy. I, I realize that you have the, the power to determine my fate. And I simply put my hand, my, my life before you and ask for your grace. And the conductor smiles and said, welcome, welcome. But then there are those who go, whip out their wallet. Here you go. How much is it? Let me give it to you. He goes, get off. Wait, you haven't seen how much I can do. Get off. There's the picture right there. The world and mankind, for the most part, we want to buy our ticket. We want to earn it. And Jesus says, no, you're just as bad a sinner as the person who was placed in prison because they were starving their children. Because you didn't construct the building properly. You're just as bad as they are. You're just as guilty. Your sin is just as detestable to me. It's my grace. So all I'm asking you to do is recognize that I'm the God of the universe, that I have the power to save you and forgive you and ask for it. That's biblical repentance. Have you done that? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this morning. Thank You that while we were still sinners, You died for us. And Lord, if there's one that doesn't know You today as their Savior, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit that they would come to know You as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that they would quit trying to do the deeds so they can earn their righteousness and recognize that all our deeds are as filthy rags in Your sight. And that, Lord, it is unmerited favor that we all need. The grace of God. So, Lord, if there's one that doesn't know You, I pray that You would draw them today. Lord, if there's one that's in bondage today because they feel like they've made decisions that have caused the pain and suffering in their life. Lord, I pray that You would release them from that bondage today and they would seek Your grace today. Lord, for those who are full of pride, thinking that they have done well, that they are doing well, Lord, I pray that You would convict us of our pride and that we may repent of that as well and recognize that You are God of grace and mercy. And but by the grace of God, yet there go I. In Your name we pray. Amen.